Sillinger's pass intercepted. Canucks have a two-on-one. Morrison to Nazan. Cutting in. Deeks scores. Oh, captain, my captain. The Canucks lead 3-2. Nazan gets the puck in the right wing corner. Nice pass to Morrison. Cutting in front. Morrison. Deeks shoots. Scores. Brendan Morrison in triple overtime. There will be a game seven. Now Nazan turns back. Right wing feed Bertuzzi. Moves in. Cuts to the middle. Bertuzzi tries a shot. Scores. A little delayed shot from Bertuzzi. What a clever move by Big Bertuzzi. My goodness. This is when he really makes you woozy. Morrison tips the puck to Nazan. Up to Bertuzzi now. Gets into the Chicago's own centers. Nazan shoots. And he scores. <laughs> the streak continues for Bertuzzi as Nazan beat Tebow over the shoulder. It's 2 0 Vancouver. Don't you just love it? That was when I ruled the world. You're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. We'll mention the West Coast Express to Vancouver Canucks fans, and they'll certainly tell you it was one of the most memorable hockey eras in our city. The era, as you just heard, included trios like uh, Marcus Nosland, uh, Todd Bertuzzi, and Brendan Morrison, who combined for 718 points in a three-year period. On and off the ice, it was a really unique moment in Canuck history. Our next guest captured the many stories behind that moment in history in in the uh, new podcast series that has just been released called Unreal West Coast Express. The first two episodes have already dropped with a third one to be released on February 10th. Our guest has spent nearly a year speaking to players, coaches, and journalists uh, from that era, Scott Rinto is a well-known sportscaster and radio and TV personality. He is also the creator, writer, and nator- narrator of Unreal West Coast Express. So I guess I, I can add podcaster to uh, his resume as well. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Chad, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been looking forward to our conversation all day. I guess my first question to you is what motivated you to focus on that era of the Vancouver Canucks? Well, there's a couple of different things, but I think the primary one is it's just such a great story. That line in particular, three different players who began their careers with different organizations and for one reason or another asked to be moved out of those situations. They were also acquired by three different general managers. So three different GMs had a plan for each of them, and then somehow they end up all on the same line that becomes the most dominant one in the NHL. So that alone is just a great story. The personal side of it is that I wanted to dig into something long form. It's not something I've had the opportunity to do in my career. So this was, from a selfish point of view, a project that I really wanted to pursue for all of the reasons I mentioned above. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I think of the Canucks, when I started in, in the journalism world at the station, actually, early 1990s, you had Pavel Bure, uh, you had uh, Trevor Linden, and if you look at the, I guess, later in the odds, you had uh, the Sedins. This this era that we're talking about here is sandwiched in between both of those eras, aren't they? They are, and what's interesting about it is that this era is the one that pulled the Canucks out of the dark days of the late 90s. You mentioned 94 and Pavel Bure. That was an exciting time mm-hmm. for Canucks fans, and it was supposed to continue. And then all of a sudden, it headed downhill. And despite the fact they had a new arena and an owner with deep pockets and star power, they had Bure. They went out and traded for McGillney. They brought in Mark Messier, the most prolific free agent signing still to this day in Canucks history. And everyone thought it was going to be good times. The Canucks are going to go get a cup. Well, they weren't even making the playoffs, and they were finishing at the bottom of the Western Conference. And lo and behold, three players who I teed up before, who weren't even part of the Canucks' plan at one point, come in and become the face of the franchise that leads them out and becomes one of the most exciting 
teams, not just lines, in the entire National Hockey League at that time. What's the sense of the relationship between Nasland and uh, Bertuzzi and Morrison? Were they friends off ice as well? Yes, they were, and that's something that certainly I explore throughout the course of the podcast. And in particular, the fact that Marcus Naslin and Todd Bertuzzi became very close over their years in Vancouver. And you wouldn't think it based on the outward personalities that we saw. Marcus Naslin, more soft-spoken, very much the classy European captain and always minding his P's and Q's, if you will. And Todd Bertuzzi, more of a gruff character and one that would sometimes talk to the media, sometimes not back in those days. It seemed like the odd couple. It really did when we found out that they became such good friends. But there was that shared background of being in an organization, maybe not being given the right opportunity to become the players they ultimately did with Pittsburgh and the New York Islanders, respectively. So perhaps that was the foundation for that friendship. And then Brendan Morrison might be one of the most likable, affable, easygoing guys you'll ever meet. He gets along with everybody. So it's no surprise that he fit in seamlessly with them as well. well did you have any difficulty convincing people to, to, to speak to you for, for this longer form, form project? One, it's one thing to do, uh, wanting to do something like this. It's another thing to convince people to be part of, uh, 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 to talk about that moment. Because some of them, those memories can be tough. Uh, people may, you know, don't stay in touch. There, there's lots of things. Everything has to sort of align to do a project like you've just been able to accomplish. How difficult was it to convince people to speak? You're right, and not everybody participated. There were more invitations out there, but all of the principals really did, and it began with those three players, Jazz, and it's a great point you make. You're, you're not sure when you dream up this idea that you can get everybody on board, but Marcus, Todd, and Brendan were the first three who said, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that time. Despite the way it ended, everybody yeah. had a really good time of their lives and their careers during that era. And once those three were on board, then Brian Burke, Mark Crawford, Ed Jovanovsky, the Sedins, go down the list. They were very happy to participate. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about, uh, as you said, when it ended or perhaps, uh, you know, the most high-profile incident during that era, uh, the hit uh, that uh, Todd Pertuzzi was involved with in regards to Steve Moore. Let's take a listen to that moment. Todd shadowing him, having words with Moore, keeping right after him. Bertuzzi challenging Moore, grabs a hold of him and throws a right hand at him. A cheap shot sucker punch from Todd yeah. Bertuzzi. And now everybody's into it at center ice. Brad May is throwing punches with Kurt Sauer. Sauer. Hedberg is challenging Abisher from center ice. Abisher saying, why don't you come down here so you can get thrown out. Meanwhile, the May-Sauer fight continues in the neutral well, somebody's zone. Somebody's hurt here. Somebody's hurt here. Well, I think that's Moore who got cold cocked by... Todd Bertuzzi and Moore is laying prone at center. Uh, that hit, uh, speak to me a little bit about uh, where that fits in the context of the West Coast Express and the broader uh, Canuck franchise in your mind. What, what happened with that hit in your mind? Well, it changed everything, quite frankly. It changed a lot of people's lives, Steve Moore's and Todd Bertuzzi's primarily. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously an incident that nobody will ever forget, and certainly it's something that had to be talked about in the telling of this story. What I really didn't want to do with the West Coast Express and the project that I've laid out is make that the focal point. Mm-hmm. It's not, but it is certainly a chapter, and I didn't want to relitigate that case either, Jazz. I don't think that's my place, and I don't think that's the way this story is told. This is their story through their words and their perspective. So, yeah, there were some uncomfortable conversations that had to be had, and it's an uncomfortable chapter. 
But yes, it changed everything. Todd Bertuzzi was not the same player after that. The line itself was never quite the same. And maybe that would have been their best year to try to win a Stanley Cup. I suppose we'll never know. But there are those who are close to that team and who covered that team mm-hmm. that believe that they were at the maturity level and at the skill level and it compiled a deep enough roster that maybe that would have been the year that they took a run. Uh, I'm very curious. I mean, it's not like this is 50 years ago. This is the early aughts. Uh, mm-hmm. But but in regards to putting that, that trio, again, how difficult in this modern era is it to put together three people like that that are so incredibly productive? I mean, it, 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 it almost seems impossible now. I'm not saying it was easy then either, but it seems almost impossible now. It's a really good point, and that's part of the reason it's such a unique and compelling story to me. Mm -hmm. Now we see a lot of duos put together, and then that third player kind of rotates through, and sometimes you find one that fits. You think of the Sedins and all the linemates they played with, and then finally Alex Burroughs just fit. But just to point out how productive that line was, that remains 2002-2003, which is the 20-year anniversary this year, Mm -hmm. that remains the highest scoring season for a single line in Canucks history. Even the years that Daniel and Henrik won scoring titles, their line overall did not outperform the 272 points that Bertuzzi, Naslin, and Morrison put together in that 02-03 season. And it was during a far different time when there was far less scoring. So they were incredibly productive. You're right. It's hard to find a line like that. It's hard to find it in any franchise, let alone the Canucks. And there's a very good argument to be made that the Sedin line is the best in Canucks history but I'm not sure you could argue there was a more exciting line ever than this one. At this uh, my, point. my final question to you, um, the um, Canucks are in a different place today. Lots mm-hmm. of excitement at that time. There's even more choice now when it comes to entertainment, not just sports, but think video games, think streaming, everything, uh, social media. Um, how would you describe the present state of the Vancouver Canucks in regards to you know on ice and off ice compared to that era? I don't think they're where they were at the end of the 90s. A lot of people have made the comparison because the organization is in a similar place in terms of transition as to where it was prior to the West Coast Express era kicking off. You know, they just traded Bo Horvat almost 25 years to the day, literally less a week from Trevor Linden being traded to the New York Islanders in a similar three-for-one deal. And boy, wouldn't the Canucks love it if it worked out the same way for them because Todd Bertuzzi was the guy who ended up coming back the other way and Brian McCabe ended up getting them a Sedin. It's a tough state of affairs right now on the ice for the Vancouver Canucks, but if you look, most games are still very well attended. There is still a lot of emotion around the team right now. There's not a sense of apathy in the fan base that I can see right now like there was in the late 90s. So despite the fact that they're going to really need some good things to happen here in the next couple of years to get back on track, the fan base is far more engaged at this point than it was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Scott, I want to wish you nothing but the best. I've, I've already downloaded the first two episodes. I listened to the first one. Fabulous work, my friend. And as I said, the first two have dropped. The third one's dropping on February 10th. And correct me if I'm wrong here, in total there'll be nine episodes of Unreal West Coast Express. You are correct. You nailed the number. There you go. Well, congratulations to you, sir, and all the best to you, and I highly recommend folks check out Unreal West Coast Express uh, wherever you uh, uh, download your podcast, whether it's Spotify or Apple or or whatever uh, platform you're using. Scott, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for your time, Jazz. I really appreciate the invitation.